Do you ever look at your circumstances and wonder, what in the world is the Lord doing? Whether it's suffering or trials or temptation or persecution or just plain weariness from your life. These kind of circumstances can cause us to question, what is God doing in my life? What is happening around me? Today we see often the Lord works in ways we least expect. There are twists and turns in our life that cause us concern. But as we see today, the Lord is always working. Paul was at the end of himself. Everywhere he went, there was either rejection or apathy. There were some small believers, small groups, but as a whole, every city in Europe he visited either led to him being beaten or a mass rejection of the message of the gospel. It appears only small numbers embraced Paul's gospel in many of the places he went. If I were Paul, I'm fairly sure at about this time I would have crawled into a cave and curled up into a ball and waited for the other missionaries to catch up with me. It would be, okay, I've preached a sermon to a bunch of philosophers and they mocked me and thought I was crazy. And every other place I had been, I've been beaten and chased out of town after town in Europe. I think we might be in the wrong location. I'm fairly sure at this point there were doubts that crept into his mind. In mine, I probably would have gone running home. But as we will see, the Lord moved Paul on to Corinth. And in the process, we once again see Jesus is building his church. He's exerting his sovereign control over a lost world. Yes, he is plucking his people out of the world. Jesus is all about adding, to his, adding sheep to his fold. So this section, this passage, breaks down into three main scenes. We have the Lord's sovereign progress in verses 1 to 4, the Lord's sovereign provision in verses 5 to 11, and then we will see the Lord's sovereign protection in verses 12 to 17. Today, again, we see the Lord Jesus is all about building His church through His servant, the Apostle Paul. I know we're all not the Apostle Paul, but as we unfold this passage, we all need to know that the Lord is still this involved in all of His children's life. He knows what we need, and He is graciously working to use us to build His church. That's good news, isn't it? God is working in us. Let's start with the Lord's sovereign progress. The Lord's sovereign progress. There are new opportunities as he comes into Corinth. Look at verse 1. It says, After these things, he left Athens and went into Corinth. After what things? After Paul's encounter with the Greek philosophers in Acts 17, as we saw last week. He was widely mocked and considered foolish because he preached Christ crucified and resurrected. Paul left a bunch of people who thought they were too wise to even consider what Paul or his message was about. So Paul moved 50 miles down the road to Corinth. Corinth was a new opportunity. But obviously with the new city, 
brought a whole new set of problems. Paul was weary, alone, and afraid. We see this in verse 9. Notice, in verse 9 it says, The Lord said, Do not be afraid any longer. What's that imply? He's afraid. Uh, this is very encouraging me to a degree. This is the Apostle Paul. And what does it appear? That he alone, he himself is afraid. That means we, he's a human. I can really relate with other humans, right? Later, Paul would describe his heart in the time in his first in this time in his first letter to first to the current church in Corinth. Excuse me. Look at what First Corinthians two states. Go over there. First Corinthians two. Paul's talking to the church in Corinth that he's just about to establish here in verse eighteen by the power of the gospel. He's writing back to them to talk about when he came to them. And notice in verse 1 it says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. You can see he had Athens on his mind, those superiority of speech, those Greek philosophers when he came. But he says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He stayed on point, didn't he? And notice verse 3. These are those words that are so encouraging. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Wow. What does this say? This says the new opportunity arrives for the Apostle Paul, but he's like many of us. He was at a point of fear, of trembling, being afraid. Anybody else suffer with that occasionally? I don't know about you guys, but that happens to me. It's all right. This is, shows our vulnerability and our need of a Savior and need of the Lord. God often brings us to these places where we're all to the end of ourselves, and we say, you know what, I'm afraid. Why? So that we will preach to ourselves the glory of Him. As the psalm said that we read today, and as you can tell from Bob, I could tell Bob was relating to the psalm. It was real to him. And how often do we need to preach to our souls hope in God? That's where the Apostle Paul is. The new city also brought all kinds of new challenges. Corinth was known for its sexual immorality. It was like our country today. For over 50 years, the phrase to Corinthianize meant to be sexually immoral. So the city itself was known for its immorality. As we know from 1 Corinthians, turn over to 6.9, the church is founded with a group of immoral people. Now again, when Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 6.9, he's not talking just about what's going on in their hearts as Jesus and Matthew talks about. He's talking about people that were literally stuck in these sins. Now, granted that we have the problem in our own souls, all of us, but look at verse 6, 9. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice verse 11. Such were some of you. 
but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Oh, great truth here, isn't it? It also shows the depravity of where he was at. He was in Corinth. And he was dealing with the adulterers, the effeminates, the homosexuals. He was dealing with the sexual immoral, the drunkards, the revilers, the thieves. These were the ones that made up the church in Corinth, and this is the city he walks into. Oh, man, I don't know about you, but this just fires me up. It gives me such great hope because as I read the news and you read the news, you start to get a little discouraged. And then you need to be reminded, guess what? There's hope. These are the kind of cities and these are the kind of situations that God shows off His glory, ladies and gentlemen. He leaves Athens, the smart, intelligent, wise philosophers, with very little fruit. But we're going to see there's great fruit in Corinth. The city of the sexually immoral. Oh, this is good news, isn't it? Oh, folks, share the gospel. We have opportunity. We have a saving God. He's all about saving the adulterer, the homosexual. As we will see this... Wicked city still offers numerous opportunities for the apostle, doesn't it? I just love how Paul moves from the so-called wise ones of the world to the wicked ones of the world. And as we will see, God begins to save people for himself. He has many in that place. Wow, what a God. I'm so thankful. Often God doesn't choose the wise of this world to build his church. Instead, he builds the church with foolish, wicked, and... Um, and weak people. This is a warning for all of us, folks. Don't write people off. Share the gospel with everyone you can. We don't know who are the Lord's. Let's get busy, folks. Opportunity is arriving. There's also great, great hope for any of you that are in this room. Maybe you're stuck in one of these sins. Oh i got good news for you. Jesus Christ, He came. He lived the perfect life and He died on a cross and rose from the dead and He can give you deliverance too. You don't have to stay in that sin. You can know victory from the power and penalty of sin. Man, I need more of these sisters. <laughs> Amen. Oh, I'm with you. Folks, get alive. Do you understand the hope of the gospel? Isn't it great? God is good. He came to save sinners from the power and penalty of drunkenness. He came to save sinners from the power and penalty of being a thief and a liar. He came to save sinners from the power and penalty of adultery. He came to save sinners from the power and penalty of homosexuality. Praise the Lamb. If you're in bondage to any of these sins, repent and believe in Jesus Christ today. Don't leave now. Call out to Him. He will save you. Isn't that great truth? 
I hope this, ne- this message never becomes old for even new believers. Or if so, you've forgotten who you were. So a new opportunity comes. A new city. The Lord moved His ambassador to this new city with, his, with its own new issues. Next, next we see God brought some new co-laborers. Look at verse 2. When he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Oh, this is a very gracious act of God's providence and His sovereign control. The Lord used an anti-Semitic act to bring Paul some encouragement from some fellow Jewish believers. We're not told when Aquila and his wife Priscilla became believers, but it's obvious this couple brought new hope to the Apostle Paul, and they do become believers. Aquila and Priscilla left Rome because the emperor at that time didn't like the Jews and wanted them out of Rome. So you look at a circumstance like that and you think, oh, that's just barbaric, anti-Semitic. That's horrible what that guy is doing. But God used it. God used it to bring Priscilla and Aquila to Paul in Corinth and he needed that encouragement. And God says, here, here's this couple that will become fellow workers with you. This is God, isn't he? He gives that beautiful little grace gift exactly when we're needed. When we're at the end of ourselves, he gives us those grace gifts. What a good God. What a good God we serve. Paul later in the letters acknowledges what a blessing these two were. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, 19. Paul writes later from Ephesus back to Corinth telling them about... Aquila and Priscilla again. In verse 19 of chapter 16 it says, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. It appears that these people were somewhat well off. They have houses everywhere. You'll see again in a second. Or wherever they go, they're able to have a house. And here they actually have a church in their house in Ephesus. The church in Ephesians or in, in, in Ephesus, it appears started in their, their house that they had. They went with Paul from Corinth, we'll see in a little while. And then in Romans chapter 16, look over there. Paul speaks of them again. Writing to the Romans, he explains, now they're where? In Rome. Now they're back in Rome. This is later. Romans 16, 3-5, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. Man, these are church planters, huh? Greet Epaphanaeus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. This couple was a huge blessing to Paul. They came to Corinth and they came alongside Paul. Then they worked with him both to provide for him food and encouragement in his ministry. 
He apparently lived with them, possibly in their house in Corinth. And again, it appears at some point they risked their own life for Paul. So you get this beautiful picture of the way the church works. How people are always working together to lay down their life for each other. And it helps to build the church. It's what it's all about, ladies and gentlemen. This was just what Paul needed. He must have been lonely. He had no family traveling with him. He was alone in cities that as a whole wanted nothing to do with him or his God. They were wicked, rebellious, pagans, and he, also, he was all alone. So the Lord sovereignly worked to help encourage his missionary to keep on going. I'm struck here. As I was thinking through this passage, I, I have to confess that after doing Acts chapter 17, I was thinking, what can top that? Acts 17, that sermon was amazing, wasn't it, ladies and gentlemen, that he preached? I got to Acts 18, I read it the first of the week again just to refresh my mind and get going again, and I thought, not much there. It was my cold heart that needed to stop and meditate on the truth that was revealed in this passage. It is glorious. Oh, I'm struck by the kindness of our Lord here. How good He is. I think all too often we, in our circles, we can see God as only that wrathful, just God that's so transcendent, so far above us and so beyond us that we can't see the goodness of God and the kindness of God. Oh, He is a kind, loving Father, a good God. Again, the Lord knows exactly what we need. And He provides exactly what Paul needed here. He often does it in ways we never expect. But God not only loved us at the cross, ladies and gentlemen, He died to provide atonement for us there and new life through the resurrection, but He also continues to love us as, his, as a father loves his children. Do you understand? Today, you, if you are a believer in Christ, you are loved by God. He is loving you now. He loves you. Good truth, isn't it? I need to hear that. How about you? And he's saying this. And he's doing this. And he's showing his love and his kindness and his goodness to the Apostle Paul. I need this hug. How about you? What a good God. So Paul does what he always did. Notice third, a new synagogue. The encouragement of having Aquila and Priscilla must have motivated Paul to once again enter the local synagogue. Observe verse 4, it states, And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul goes about the work of ministry again. I want to make a note here that Paul's ministry was double duty service. Remember, he was working with Aquila and Priscilla initially when he gets into Corinth. Making tents on the, and then on the Sabbath, he would go into the local synagogue and reason with them and seek to persuade the Jews and God fearing Greeks to Christ. Paul's ministry is so humbling to me at times. This man was relentless, he was a true servant of God and of people. 
Remember, Paul explained that much of his ministry in the, in the early churches were, was characterized by moonlighting. What's that mean? He would, he would work during the day, and then at night he would work with the people. Or in the, on the Sabbath, the day that you would rest, he would go in and work. Yeah, just so you all know, I just don't think any New Covenant preacher rests on Sunday. They don't. I work. And Paul was working on the Sabbath. What was he doing? He was sharing the gospel with people, reasoning with people, persuading people. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.9 just to remind you of this. Paul states to them, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. How about this? This is, this is beautiful, isn't it? It's amazing. The apostle Paul is this guy that's totally sacrificial and serving everywhere he goes, laying down his life, working during the day, but yet also serving people. Sacrificial love. Oh, folks. What we see here is God sovereignly advances His gospel through selfless servants. Paul was cross-eyed, fixed on Jesus, resolved that he was to serve no matter what it took. He would work to eat and then work to make disciples. Beloved, we need some of this kind of determination, don't we? We need some of this selfless service within ourselves. We need to be so enamored by the Lord Jesus, we will lay down our lives for other people. Oh, folks, do you understand? Our problem, I've thought on this so much, our problem is we are way too selfish. We focus way too much on ourselves. Again, I was reminded of this myself this week. I struggled to have a good attitude because my family wasn't around. They left on Tuesday. Hopefully they're at church. Maybe this afternoon they'll watch it. Now some of this is good because I should love my family and enjoy them, right? I want them to be around. I should want them to be around, right? But at the same time, I should be happy they get to break, uh, they get a break and they get to spend some time with my wife's family and minister to them. I should be encouraged by that, right? They should also see this as an opportunity to serve others and even more, pursue the Lord more. I want to be more like the Apostle Paul, you know, but I was self-focused, <laughs> So, yes, I did my work, and I worked through the passage, and as time went along, God, stop being so selfish, Mike. Get your eyes back on Jesus. Anybody else struggle with this, or is the pastor the only one? Selfish people, aren't we? Even Paul and his fears, he just keeps going, doesn't he? It's that energizer bunny. Yet I don't want you to forget, just because Paul was selfless, selfless, he wasn't perfect. We already saw this with his fears that were a real part of his life at the time. We can learn so much from this man's testimony and his ministry. We see God uses weak, desperate people to advance ministry. 
Do you see that? That's who he uses. We see the Lord does this through people who are constantly laying down their lives for other people. Let's get on board. What do we do? We lay down our life for others. We sacrifice for others. We know this is only accomplished by a submissive servants who pursue the Lord daily. Listen, if we're always wanting our way, we're not ready to be used by the king to build his church. Folks, we've got to be submissive, suffering servants. We need to be sacrificial towards others. What we see in, this first, in these first four verses of chapter 18 is, the sovereign Lord is using his servant to advance the gospel to a new city to, with new workers in a new synagogue. Next we see our second main scene in the Lord's construction of his church in Corinth. We see the, Lord, the Lord's sovereign provision. In verses 5 to 11, the Lord provided four grace gifts in Corinth to help establish the church there. Four grace gifts in Corinth to help establish the church there. First grace gift, notice, a sweet reunion. Look at verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. How these two missionaries found him, I'm really not sure. How did Silas and Timothy do it? They probably just went in his to all the synagogues that he had been thrown out and said, well, I think he moved on down the road down that way. We got rid of him. But slowly but surely they made their way to him. And as they did, when he, they arrived, this was a great blessing for the Apostle Paul. Paul was now both spiritually encouraged by his faithful partners, and second, he financially was provided for upon their arrival. How do we know this? Well, first he stops working, but also look over at 2 Corinthians 11.9. 2 Corinthians 11.9. It appears that Silas and Timothy brought a financial gift from the Macedonian churches. In 2 Corinthians 11.9 it states, And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia... They fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. So Paul's talking to the, current, the church in Corinth, and he says, Remember back then? What happened? When I was working, Paul and Silas brought this help, this financial help. Again, I was talking to, the, to Grace on Campus about this two weeks ago. Do you understand? That's why you have your job. Do you understand, folks, that the reason why you work is so you can give to those in need? That's the point. That sounds self-serving, but it's not, I promise. Don't muzzle the ox when it's treading. You can look that up later. The whole point to this is, is that Silas and Timothy arrive and Paul is encouraged and given financial help, as well as the obvious support these two faithful friends would have brought him. The results were, look what happens back in Acts 18. Paul was able to take a break from tent making and concentrate completely on making disciples alone. Folks, this is the preacher's greatest desire. This is what the missionary wants to do. Devote ourselves completely to the Word. That's what I want to do. You understand? 
and solemnly testifying to people that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. Stephen, isn't this what we want? We want to divide ourselves completely to the Word. We want to know it, and then we want to share it. That's what we're all about. Is that what we're all about all the time? No. We're still just humans. Part of the reason why we do what we do is all to support those with this objective, right? To share the Word of God with others. Oh, I want so much for our church to be a mission-supporting church. I want so many people to hear the glory of the gospel. I want to tell more people, don't you? So when you're laboring at your job and you say, man, this seems so monotonous, this is so boring, remind yourself something. Remind yourself, we're doing this for the spread of the gospel. You're doing this for the spread of the gospel. You want other people to know Christ, don't you? That's why we work. So the first provision of the Lord here was a sweet reunion. Next we see a sure resolve. In verse 6 it says, But when they resisted and blasphemed, He shook out His garment and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. For now on I will go to the Gentiles. This is bold, isn't it? It's strong. It's courageous. This is an unwavering resolve. Paul shared the gospel to the Jews, and then he shared it again, and then he shared it again. And it appears, after numerous times of sharing it, eventually the Jews as a whole resisted the message and blasphemed the Lord. So Paul, in an act that is a picture of God's judgment, shook out his outer garments and said, Your blood be on your head, your own head. I am clean. From now on, I will go on to the Gentiles, or go to the Gentiles. This is pretty direct, isn't it? Pretty, pretty forceful. I gave you the truth. I gave you the truth. I gave you the truth. You're blaspheming the Lord. You're going to face judgment. That's what he's saying. And he leaves. Now again, we all need to be careful how we apply this passage, right? (laughs) Number one, we are not apostles. Get that clear. None of us are. Number two, we don't have the gift of prophecy that Paul had who would know. He had the ability to know extra things. We know for a fact that the vision says that I have other people, so God was helping him, giving him discernment in some special ways as the apostle. And number three, we don't get the divine revelation to us like Paul has, as we'll see in a little bit. But there are some practical principles we can glean from this scene. Again, this is uh, description, not prescription. We need to evaluate and see how do we apply this. Be careful with our application of this. Um, I've heard many people kind of use that uh, don't cast your pearls before swine. You know, you've heard that. And we, we often will use that when somebody ticks us off <laughs> or frustrates us. Notice the problem was not that Paul was necessarily offended. It was because they had blasphemed who? The Lord. There was, okay, you're asking for it, I'm going to leave. So be careful. Look, if all 
all we do is provoke people to blaspheme the Lord, it may be time for us to move on. I would agree. But lots of prayer and discernment should be sought before we do something like that. Okay? And be very careful. I don't think we don't, we don't have the authority to say you're under the judgment of God. I think we need to be very careful, very careful of saying, okay, you're just past the point of no return. Okay? The fact of the matter is, is that anybody that hasn't received Christ is under the judgment of God, though. And when we stop sharing the truth with them, they are just there with no hope. Either way, I believe this is more evidence of God's grace in Paul's life. He faces opposition, but he doesn't bow out of ministry altogether. And again, I think this is so very important. He doesn't leave town. He just moves on to another people group in the city. And by the way, this verse is not an excuse for anti-Semitism. And this has happened throughout church history. You watch and you look at this. What happens is, is uh, even some of uh, our heroes in the faith have started to, uh, started to consider the Jews the enemy and said, I hate the Jews. Well, we need to be very, very careful of this. This is a specific people group that he worked with, a specific people for a time offering that truth. Do you understand that every lost Jew is just like you? Outside of Christ, they need the gospel just as much as we do. Beloved, Paul was bold here, though, because the Lord gave him boldness. I believe this boldness can be characterized of all of us to a degree. We just need to surrender to the sovereign rule of the Spirit. Notice third, the strategic reaping. I just love how God works in this passage. This passage is amazing. Again, it's grown on me. Look at verse 7. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Isn't this ironic? <laughs> what does God do? Paul leaves the synagogue, walks next door, and what? Establishes a church, it appears. He establishes it in a perfect place so that anybody new that comes to the synagogue, he's right there by it. It's beautiful. God's right next door with the true message. This is beautiful. This is all God. The Lord has Paul boldly proclaimed that he's de his departure, but then Paul just moves a few steps away. This was a very strategic location. And as we'll see, not all the Jews of the local synagogue were opposed to Christ. In fact, notice Crispus, the leader of the synagogues, believed in Christ. This is great news. Paul says, I'm out of here. You, may the judgment of God be upon you. And he leaves, goes next door. And one of the guys that's in the synagogue says, I'm with him. I'm leaving too. I'm with Christ. This is so God, isn't it? Plucking who He wants, when He wants, from where He wants, that's God. I love God's independence. Thankful He's independent. I'm thankful He doesn't work the way I always think. God does what God does when He wants to do it. He was showing He was in control. In effect, the Lord is pouring out His grace on the Apostle Paul and the new church in Corinth. 
a reunion, there's resolve, and there's reaping. Many are coming to faith in Christ. So, the Lord has given Paul his fellow missionaries a bold resolve to not cast pearls before swine and a strategic foundation for the church in Corinth. Last we see the Lord graciously provided a stirring revelation in verses 9 to 11. This is probably the kindest provision that the Lord gave the Apostle Paul in this scene. Notice what the Lord's special revelation said to Paul in verses 9 to 11. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This was a special revelation from the Lord directly to the Apostle Paul. It was a giant hug from the Master. And there's three commands here, followed by three reasons to obey the Lord. Notice the Lord exerted to Paul to do not be afraid any longer, first. Second, go on speaking. Third, do not be silent. In other words, Paul, don't let your fears keep you from pursuing new disciples. Don't let your fears overcome you. Keep doing the work of ministry. I believe this is the Lord Jesus directly speaking to Paul through this vision. Again, there's some great encouragement in these words. If the Apostle Paul could struggle with being afraid, ladies and gentlemen, we're not alone in our fears. We too can be afraid. Paul was human. Fear was a fact for him. It didn't paralyze him, but it was a reality for him. But the Lord knew exactly what Paul needed. He needed a word from himself, from the Lord. So, the Lord gave him three encouragements. He starts with, for I am with you. Oh, this is beautiful. You know the passages in John where it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. You know those passages. I am the, the, the light of the world. Folks, this is, this is, I believe, another reference to this. Showing the lordship of Christ. Showing that he is God. It's ego a me meta sue. That is, beloved, or I am with you. Such good news. Emphatic. I am with you. The Lord says with every, says this, to every believer, you, you look back through Scripture, it's, it's, uh, it goes everywhere. It was the Lord who told the disciples at the Great Commission, what did He say? I am with you until the end of the age. It was what the Lord told Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 4.12. Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. He told Joshua, be strong and courageous, for I am with you. These four words, I am with you, was like salve to the soul of the Apostle Paul. I'm with you. I'm with you, Paul. There's no reason to be afraid anymore, Paul. I'm with you. The nearness of God is one of the most comforting doctrines in the entire Bible, isn't it? As this week, without the family there, I, it, I just thank God for that truth. 
it's amazing how much you begin to depend on people and you start, your life is like kids and family and everything. But to be alone, you're like, okay, stop and realize you're alone. But then you read a passage like this. I am with you. Oh, what does this say about us? Even redeemed believers need to be reminded of God's presence in their life. We need to be reminded constantly, don't we? Do you understand that the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 had just told all of them that God was around them and intimately involved in everything, didn't he? In Him we live and move and breathe, remember? He was talking about the intimacy of God and the nearness of God to the unbelievers, calling them to repentance. And here, what does he need to hear from God? I'm with you. What does it say about us children of God? We are sheep. We are sheep. We're little lambs. We need to be reminded. And we need to remind ourselves. And we need to remind each other. What? God is with us. He's with us. God's children can proclaim their father's nearness, but they constantly need to be reminded of it themselves. I need it, don't you? I mean, if we could take a little barometer check and see how many times we kind of check out of our minds and think and forget that God is with us. Would you not agree if we could really check all that off? Don't you often find yourself hopefully not all the time, but often find yourself thinking, I'm all by myself. Even when you have spouses or whatever, you still, right? Oh, this is, this is the message a disciple maker needs. We need to remember that God is with us. Next, the Lord states, No man will attack you in order to harm you. Wow, what a promise, huh? First off, it speaks to Paul's mindset. It appears his fears were associated with the numerous beatings and mistreatments he had endured. You don't have to fear anymore. Okay, you don't have to fear anymore. And he says, No man will attack you in order to harm you. He was weary, wasn't he? He's like, he's flinching. I can see myself being this man. Because every time he goes to speak, if somebody starts to embrace the message, what's that mean coming around the corner? Somebody's going to hit me. Somebody's going to grab me and take me before authorities, and I'm going to get beaten or run out of town. You could see where the Apostle Paul would start to get a little bit gun-shy. What do you think? Looking over his shoulder. And what does God say? No man will attack you in order to harm you. This is a special city, Paul, and a special place, and I have a special plan for you here. He was weary of being hurt, but God says, in effect, you're not going to be clobbered again here. What we see here is that Paul, the Lord sees our frailness. Ah, Take note of this, all you believers. Listen to me closely. This is one you need to write down. God sees your frailness. He sees when you're at the end of yourself. He knows when you're hurting. He's not 
this God is up there saying, oh, let me give him a little bit more suffering. <laughs> Sometimes we often think, here he is, he's about to give me another whack on the head. Another test is coming. That's not how God is. God loves us and he's in control. It means that God knows and is in control of what comes against his own. And he controls it so that it comes when we can glorify him through it and will provide grace to endure it. Yes, there's suffering, folks. And yes, there's persecution. But it's at the time when we're ready. I know that sounds crazy. But he gives us the grace to then endure our persecutions and our trials. He knows your weakness. Some of you in here, because of the sovereignty of God, you, you say... I don't really like the sovereignty of God because then that means he's controlling suffering and I'm afraid he's going to give me a lot of that one. He's going to give me a lot of that. Do you understand that God is good too? And he's kind. And he loves you. He's gentle. He doesn't take his little lambs and beat us to death. This is the Apostle Paul. He knew that the Apostle Paul needed a year and a half break. And he gave it to him. I don't know about you, but I need more than a year and a half. When we need a break, God can and does step into our lives to help us. What, great, what a great God we serve, right? He's kind. Please, beloved. Know our God sees your circumstances and knows exactly what you need for the moment. We must cling to Him, trust in His promises, and rest in His goodness. Now that does not mean that God is making that same promise that you are not going to suffer for the next year and a half. That would be bad application. Okay? But what it does mean is, is that God sees your frailness and He loves you and He will care for you. He's about His glory. And he's not about making you miserable. It is not his life goal to make you feel horrible. God wants you to enjoy him. Finally, the third encouragement the Lord gives Paul is preceded with another glorious promise. For I have many people in this city. This is truly like God rolling back the clouds of his sovereign will to give Paul a glimpse of the fruitful time to come in Corinth. The Lord says, in effect, pull up a tent, Paul. You're going to be staying for a little while. I have lots of my children in this place. Those whom I've ordained to, be, to come to me, I have many here. Preach away, Paul. Many of my elect are here. Don't worry, you're not going to get clobbered. Keep going. Man, I don't know about you, but can you see the Apostle Paul just told, I, I, can, I know what he would be thinking. Give me a pulpit. <laughs> Who can I talk to? This is like the most encouraging thing you can hear if you're a missionary. I'm going to preach. Nobody's going to hammer me. And there's many that are going to accept the message. Wow. Now, we are not told these kind of truths. So how does this apply to us? Do we know that in Tampa there are many by his name. Well, I would argue that many of you are. I see the fruit and evidence, so praise the Lamb. But 
Here's how it applies. We need to know that God knows what brings us joy. And He works with His children to participate with Him in His work. Listen, God wants to use us. I know He doesn't need us. But He desires to use us. He finds joy in using us to share the truth with the world. Isn't that good news? Our God loves us. And He delights to use His children to proclaim the Word of God to others. Now this doesn't always mean peace with the world. But we can know that God knows when we need grace. And He uses it. This is encouraging, isn't it? God saw the weary and frightened Paul and He brought relief. The Lord knew Paul needed some grace. And God worked through His providence to bring him some. Again, what we see here is exactly what I talked about at GOC on Thursday. We are loved children of God. Not just at conversion or the cross, but weekly, daily, hourly. God loves you. I said it. I'm saying it again. Why am I saying it? Because I know it's the motivation for you to go and imitate your father. You need to hear this. So I'm sounding very much like a prosperity preacher today, aren't I? No. I'm not promising you riches. I'm not promising you a Bentley. I'm not promising you that every one of your credit cards are going to be paid off tomorrow. I'm not promising you those things. I'm not promising you riches. I'm saying God wants you to be satisfied with Him. He wants you to delight in Him. And He loves you. He wants to give us a glimpse of Himself. He wants us to rest in Him and know that He is good and that He has our backs. He wants us to know He will use us to build His church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He wants us to know our pains and our fears and our concerns do not go unnoticed by God. That's what He wants you to know through these passages. He loved us. He is loving us. And He will always love us. It's good news. If this doesn't make you just want to jump up and start sharing the gospel, you've missed the whole point of the message. He loves you. So let's not fear. Instead, let's go speak the truth and live for Him. So as Paul faced this difficulties in ministry, we'll close with an illustration of it. The last point, we won't detail it completely, but it'll be a good illustration. Watch this. I love how this unfolds. The Lord's sovereign protection. Look at verse 12. Let's read down through the end. Verse 17, rather. But while Galileo, Galileo, was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Uh-oh. Wait a second. At this point, what do you think Paul was thinking? I would love to know what Paul was thinking at this point. God, you just told me. You got my back. You just told me. You told me in that vision, hey, don't worry about it. I got you. There's many who believe. 
And the next thing that happens, it appears, not too far later, Paul was about to open his mouth and Galileo said to the Jews, notice verse 14, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jew, Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there, was, there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourself. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. So Paul's protected by a Roman official. <laughs> and in the process, notice what happens. The opposition implodes on itself. Look at verse 17. And they took, they all took this next leader of the synagogue and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But the Roman official, Galileo, was not concerned about any of these things. What is this? This is beauty. <laughs> this is amazing. In God's providence, in His God's sovereign protection, what's He do? Last time Paul went before magistrates and Roman officials, it cost him a beating. He got beat, beat, remember, and thrown in jail. Here, the total opposite happens. The Roman official says what? Get out of my face. That's basically what he says. I don't, I don't need to hear this. You want to go argue about law and all those things? Get out of here. I'm not talking about this. And then what happens? It's almost comical. You know that the guy that replaced the guy that left, Crispus, left. A new guy, this Suthesnes, or however you say his name, I'm sorry. What happens? This guy is the replacement, and what does he do? He says he gets beat to death, or not to death, but at least beat in front of the judgment seat. This is God's sovereign protection. It's beautiful, isn't it? What do we see? What do we see? God's a promise-keeping God. God loves his people. God cares for us. God is good. He is kind. God can use even Roman officials to bring about his protection for us. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. What do we need to do? Trust him. That's what we got to do. Trust him. And then boldly go and proclaim the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great revelation of your truth. Lord, we do pray that you will help us now as we go about our week to hang on to these truths, to preach to our souls and remind our own souls to hope in God, to remember that you are good and that your loyal love is forever for your own. Oh, Father, I pray for all those that are in this place all those that know you as their Father, I pray, Lord, that you will encourage their souls and embolden them to go out and proclaim the gospel to the world. And Father, I do pray that if there's anyone here that is like those in Corinth when Paul arrived, they're stuck in sin, dead in sin, and have no hope, I pray, Lord, that you will open the eyes of their heart that they may know the glory of Jesus Christ and that they will turn to Him and they will trust Him. Oh God, grant repentance today, please. Maybe there's one here, Lord. I pray that You will work in that person to cause them to see their sin and their need of a Savior. Please, Lord, save them.
Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers, and we pray that you will be glory, glorified in our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.